Hit record. Okay, it's being recorded. <laughs> so we have to do a new intro? I'm so, I'm sorry. I am so. Hi, welcome. Okay. <laughs> and you did I, it so well. I know. And <laughs> you did it perfectly. And I was this close to coming off the rails because I was like, oh my God. I was like word by word. It's like, what am I saying next? Okay, here we go. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello again. <laughs> Can we talk about what just happened? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that okay? I mean, Listeners, we have been said, on the Zoom. I guess. <laughs> We, we have yeah. been on the Zoom for more than an hour. So we're not going to hear anything that happened before now. It was our most brilliant conversation I ever for- lost to history. I forgot to hit record. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. You know what? You know what I want to do? I would love to return to doing this in the morning. Remember when we used to do this on like Saturday mornings? Saturday morning. That was the oh, bit. We, were, we had so much we were so up. We were yes. so peppy. I was always hitting the record button. Like everything was better. Except, except that when Trisha got on, she would say, you guys are assholes. Yeah, that's true. Because it, it was, was early like, for her. It was, it was seven in the her. morning for her on a Saturday. Well, actually, nowadays, I wake up quite early. So I think I could probably do it now. Yo, everyone. I do now. It will fully be 830. Not even. Not even. It will fully be 757 in the morning over here. And Trisha will text me like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, girl, what time is it? Why are you awake? Why are you awake? You're up at like 5 a.m. Doing full nothing. Confession. Full, full confession, y'all. Ever since I passed the magic 4-0, I just don't sleep a lot anymore. My body just doesn't seem to. I mean, I've noticed it with aging. I thought I would sleep more. But, you know, back in the day when you could sleep through to noon, one, I don't do that anymore. I just automatically wake up at like at six o'clock and I'll try to just hang out in bed. Isn't that crazy? I'm a little bit upset by it. What time do you go to, to bed? What time do you go to bed? I start winding down at about 10, 11. So maybe like 11. Amazing. Amazing. I couldn't do that. I I, wish. I feel real bad about it. I often tell my wife, I wish I didn't need as much sleep as I do. I need sleep. Oh, you're one of those that need. I just, I used to do it, but I just don't anymore. Uh, I want less sleep, less food, less toileting. I want to do nothing that connects me to the human experience. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know that about you. Yeah, that hasn't changed. Jason, what were you going to say? I remember in your 20s, Chris saying, I wish we could all walk around with IV so I didn't have to deal with eating. I was going to say, I mean, I typically get like six hours a night during the week, which is not enough. That's and not I, enough. I sleep a ton on the weekends. And so yesterday morning, woke up at six because my daughter had a soccer game. She, we had gone, she had gone horseback riding the day before, woke up, she woke up with her neck really sore. And so I was like, oh, I emailed her coach, like she can't make it today. And then I laid on on the couch. She was like, can we watch the Simpsons together? And she was like in pain. I was like, Aww. of course, Aww. I fell asleep. I woke up. I was sure I'd been asleep for 30 minutes. It was 11 a.m. I had slept for five hours. Where was your daughter? I just, she was next to me on the couch. Okay. I thought she was left to her own devices, had to scrounge her food, get herself ready for school, whatever. Um, That happens sometimes, but she, my kids are old enough now that that's okay. Why are you admitting that on a podcast? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. 
So listeners, uh, we'll save the topic that we fully discussed and brilliantly described for another time. But right now we want to talk about children. Won't someone please think about the children (laughs) has been a rallying cry in politics and society for many decades, usually as a way to push some sort of governmental action against usually a vulnerable group of people. And we've seen a lot of this in the recent days and months as states enact all sorts of legislation to ostensibly punish trans people or queer people. I don't know if we want to get into their motivations, but I think what sparked uh, this conversation for the three of us is really, how did we arrive at this point, given that childhood is, believe it or not, a relatively new invention? How is it that we use children as sort of like the ultimate chess piece in any sort of social movement? Like, how did they get so centrally placed? What is our obsession with creating a world for children to the point where we will forego logic, common sense, science, and reasoning once you throw children on the table. So what do you think? <laughs> literally or figuratively throw them on yes, the table. Yes, literally what's, yes, because so, they are the ultimate tool. What's interesting to me, so on the one hand, it makes sense just to talk kind of, recognize is always dangerous, but from kind of an evolutionary or biological perspective, it kind of makes sense. We know that, you know, human beings, generally speaking, are hardwired to like, if we're going to survive as a species, like you've got to really care about the next generation. So there's all of that. And I can say as a parent, like, yes, there's nothing more scary than thinking about your own children in danger like that. I get that. But to build on what you were saying, Chris, what is amazing to me is the complete dissociation with logic and reason in many cases. So there is a belief in our society, maybe not mainstream, but I'm shocked at how many seem to believe it, that like there's this belief that's been promulgated around, oh, there are liberal Democrats who are pedophiles and who do this to children. I have much to say about that. I mean, every day my kids and I pass the Comet Pizza Place where the guy several years ago went in and shot and shot uh, in the air because he had seen online that there were kids in the basement place doesn't have a basement but kids in the basement that had been kept there for hillary clinton and others to molest them just absolutely insane now again that's not a mainstream idea but there are people who believe it and i think it's exactly what you say chris which is i think there are people on the right that say well how are we going to really demonize these liberals we're going to say that they're pedophiles who you know, want to eat children or kill children or whatever. What's interesting, and I don't know whether, I suspect these things are connected to what I'm about to say, that's not mainstream. What right now though, with some of the laws we see coming out, there seems to continue to be a belief among a significant portion of the population. Again, these tend to be, I think, right of center people that think that homosexuality is something that children can be groomed and nurtured to do. And so you see these laws that are saying teachers don't say gay, don't talk about homosexuality, uh, you know, beneath a certain or uh, under a certain age, because we're worried that gay teachers are going to groom children who otherwise would be heterosexual to be gay when they grow up. And again, I think there's no evidence for this. I think it's insane, but there are clearly enough people who believe it that think that these laws are really important. And I, I just, I can't explain it. I find it just disgusting. And but that's just even more to my point. It barely makes sense, yet it holds water. Trisha, what's going on? 
for you, it's not so much about the laws. It's actually the deploying of children as a tool, right? Children as a tool to for, pass these um, laws because the lawmakers know pass, this will be animating. So I'm curious yeah, about that animating. force. I mean, I think the animating force is every anim is the is the force. You, um, Jason, is a parent. If somebody came to you and said something about your child versus your sibling, it's animating around your kid, right? Because you feel as if it is your responsibility to clear the road for your child. That's what they're triggered by, right? Is they're triggered by the oversized responsibility that people feel that they have for children. Whereas with adults, it's a little bit more negotiable, right? You, What I feel is appropriate for me is one thing, but what I think is appropriate for a child is, um, is really very limited. And I think that that's, the, that's an easy trigger, I think. To generate for people. I think for me, what's less, in, what's more interesting for me is sort of the incongruity of all of it. You know, this is the same group of people um, whose children in some ways are being traumatized by drills in the classroom around gun violence. That doesn't seem to animate or move people. So I actually think that there is something kind of questionable about what is animating around protecting children. So you want to protect kids, but you don't want to protect them from everything, which is because we haven't what? crafted and shaped a, a narrative in which those are the kinds of things that be like your child is like underneath desks because you, you're running through a drill and it's not even it's a drill that is slightly unnecessary because it's not a fire drill where an accident could happen. This is something where someone will willfully come in with a weapon that you've deemed legal and do horrific things. So I, for me, it's like, how are you able to be triggered to protect children in one instance, but not in another? So this is interesting because now this conversation, I feel like I'm going to take it down a road that we did not anticipate when we talked about this earlier. You're right. Like even after Sandy Hook, after all these school massacres, they didn't bother to pass a single law about gun control, right? And it is the statistics, which by the way, federally, you cannot get federal dollars to run yeah. this sort of research into de gun deaths. That's yeah. look that up. That's shocking. That's right. The federal government will not give any money to any researcher who wants to investigate that. But but oh, newsflash, it's totally a connected statistic, right? Like guns kill people, right? Yet this whole connection between like if a kid should hear that another kid has two dads, like work, honey, 15 years from now, you're on the, the float at the parade. Like it doesn't, there is zero evidence for that. As a matter of fact, there's every piece of evidence to the contrary, because like I would say 95% of all children have come from a cisgendered heterosexual woman. Yep. Or uh, I, I walk back some of those statistics, but most gay people have straight parents, most of them. So it's interesting to me that the animating force isn't facts. It's boogeymen. It's boogeymen. But like and there's fake no boogeyman, boogeyman for the gun. Yeah, like but fake, there's no fake boogeyman, boogeyman for the gun, right? Like I can't traumatize well, Why is the you. gun the boogeyman? Like how come people are motivated to protect their children in some ways, but not others? And I'll just say, I think it's because of what I can project onto the villain. I remember the reaction to gun violence in black and brown neighborhoods is very different. Sure. So I'm making a judgment call about who owns the gun and who's utilizing it in a certain capacity. Mm -hmm. The conversation about gun violence in majority white schools tends to be a little bit different. It's not seen as something kind of endemic to the people and to the community. 
it's the lone wolf, right? It's the one-off. And so mm-hmm. it's, and then that person gets, sometimes gets tremendous amount of sympathy because there are lots of different things that are going on, crises, all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a kind of like villainy that doesn't quite resonate with the gun violence in the same way as individuals propagating their lifestyle and therefore causing harm to other people as they proceed to do their lifestyle, right? That's kind of the thing that always comes across when you start talking about things like gay people or trans people. There is a there is something that is now put upon those individuals that not even a gunman gets put upon, really. I agree with everything you said, Trisha. I'll take a step back in the sense that generally speaking, I think, and I think this crosses, you know, this is left and right. I think there is this emotional, irrational reaction to we want to keep our kids safe, but we never really want to do anything different ourselves. And so the way we perceive when we, okay, child is in danger. Well, we view that through whatever lens allows us to be complacent with our own lives. So one example, I could say, you know, I think it's clear that the earth is getting much warmer and will be very difficult for our children and our grandchildren, et cetera, to survive. But it's much more convenient to say that's a hoax by the Chinese or there's nothing we can do about it anyway. It's just a natural thing because then I don't have to make different choices. I will even say like to critique people on the left, I think our schools objectively, if you look at the performance of our children in this country compared to other children, our schools are not on the whole doing a great job, but we don't want to do anything different to change that. And so we have all kinds of reasons that we attribute to that. And that can be complicated, but we don't want to change our behavior. I think on this other end, I mean, I think, you know, if you're a person who is homophobic or you think homosexuality is wrong, And let's say your child turns out to be gay. Well, God forbid you have to face the fact that your child turned out to be gay. And that's got to be someone else's fault, right? Because otherwise you're implicated. So I think we see all these things through a lens of whatever allows us to continue to perceive ourselves as good people who do the right thing and don't need to change our habits. And that goes for the gun thing too. I think if you're someone who really likes guns or you're afraid of things without having your own gun, then you're not going to view it through the lens of we need fewer guns, you're going to say, you know, the problem is video games or whatever. Hmm. I find the whole thing so disheartening, though. Like, I just think. Oh, to the extreme. It's just I mean, it's such a weird and punishing frame. For me, and I can't really take it, (laughs) obviously. Well, it's frustrating. (laughs) It's it's funny because like, wow, I don't. Well, I mean, this is, I guess, is why I talk to you all, too all the time, because you open my eyes to stuff. But like, this might seem so elementary, but this isn't really about children at all. It's just about straight up homophobia, just like the attacks yeah. on critical race theory aren't really about children at all or their education. It's just about racism. And it's, it's interesting that we continue to position children as this sort of tool, but we never get wise to it. Or we can, there's no counter messaging that being like, you're being duped. This is ridiculous. And the children are red herring. Like somehow the connection between that and the way that we do not protect children from say guns or climate control, or as we saw recently from a deadly disease, you know, like it's, 
I guess it's just about the phobia, the phobias and the isms then. Like that's the yeah. only thing that we're trying to protect our kids from. I do want to take a moment to say there, there are times I think when this kind of fear is utilized for good. And the example I think of is the children's march during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And, and there was also example during the Holocaust, there was a, a hunger strike led by Jewish leaders from Jewish children on a ship where children are put in some danger to awaken other people's consciences and consciences is maybe not the right word, but that children's march, I mean, people watch that and black people, children and adults had been subjected to awful treatment for a long time, but the visual of children being attacked created a reaction that nothing else had up until that point. So it, it can be utilized. But we've grown past for- that, Jason. Children, were, children were gunned point- down in a kindergarten like, and, and we I didn't that- care. No, I mean, I think to Jason's point, though, what I think it does is because I think what's makes this case so compelling, too, is that I don't think that people feel comfortable challenging parents about how their children should be raised. So I do think that that's also a really cross-cutting and effective tool because it allows you to be in a camp with other parents, right? And most parents don't want to be told how their kids should be raised. So once you go down that road, you've sort of like undercut any argument, right? You know, like left or right, whatever party, whatever kind of designation, people want to give parents free reign to kind of do what they want to do. So once you put an argument under the guise of for the children, you immediately cut off a set of arguments where people say, well, but what about you letting your child? And they're like, you're telling me what to do with my child? You know, that 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 shortcuts mm. a lot of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you, you know what? One thing I want to point out that that I thought of as we were talking, which I find so interesting. For I think for many years there was a critique from the right of people on the left, this special snowflake concept yeah. of like, oh, you know, you want every kid to get a trophy and your kid's special and you don't and Now, I think it's the right that, I mean, by the way, I will say, I think there's some valid, like, I don't think that critique is completely without merit. Like we are crazy protective of our kids, like make sure they're happy all the time in our country, that kind of thing. But, but now it's the right. That's like, oh my God, but if you teach about racism, my child might feel bad about for being white. And it's like, oh my God, you are doing the same thing you criticize the left for. Like it's just like, oh, our kids are so vulnerable and they're so precious and God forbid they actually learn something that's true, but that's uncomfortable. Like we don't want them to ever be uncomfortable. You know what this comes back to? And I've been saying it for a very long time. I just wish people would say, there was the thing about the Trump era that I enjoyed to a point, which was that, people were saying the quiet part out loud. As you've, you know, I, I like my racists where I can see I them, gonna, Chris Hudson. I've been, I've been saying that's that, right? Jason, I've been saying that since we were teenagers. I like my racists where I can see them. And I just, I just feel like, I just want them to come out and say, you know what? We hate trans people. We're going to pass laws against them, those motherfuckers. I just, because one, I think that's animating. It animates their people. It animates our people. Let's duke this out. But this ridiculous positioning of children and like, oh no, we're going to turn the children gay. And someone raised their hand like, well, what about the guns that are not turning the children gay, but just poking holes in them until they die with bullets? Like, is that a problem? Oh no, no, that's not a problem. It's so wild to me. I would just prefer, I prefer if we just have the conversation that we want to have. Like we don't want to, yeah, we don't want white children to feel badly about all the terrible things that we've done. Okay, great. Then put that out there and say that. Then we can work with that. It's it's just like you said, Trisha, the whole thing is just so disheartening. It's just really disheartening. And, you know, in wrapping this up, 
I guess, I mean, I guess, never mind. I answered my own question. We're never going to move away from this, are we? We're always going to use children as tools. Oh, I think, I mean, they're useful, right? Just yeah. like how clearly, and well, just they're like passing how laws. Their, no, but just like how men use their wives to rationalize their behavior when mm-hmm. they, you know, under the guise of protecting their woman. Like, I mean, I think there are assumptions about what it means to be a good parent. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a part of that is to be able to make some sort of proud proclamation about what you will are prepared to do for your children. So I think it's actually a really tricky argument to get around. But as Jason said, you're not prepared to do much because you don't want to change anything about your behavior. I've told you what is causing harm to a child. And I'm going to give you a pathway to healing and making that better. This is one of the paths that's been crafted and shaped. And it's it's compelling enough that I think, and I mean, I'll have to say to you, Jason, I don't think it's a right-left issue purely. I think liberal parents can get caught up in that as well. I think this is why it's such a strong argument, because it gets at all the things that people worry about as a parent, which is that they're never going to be good enough. And they they are they they seem to experience a tremendous amount of guilt. So I think that's a that's a button to push always. Because what if you your calculation is off? Very few parents want to take that risk. So I think you can lead them down a merry path by really pointing to their children because it's triggering mm-hmm. and it's very effective. And it cuts off maybe, like you say, Chris, it cuts off the logic part of your brain because somebody mentions your child and it's like, what are you saying about my child? And, you know, the, the coast clears and, oh, what were you saying again? <laughs> you know, I, mean. I wonder if that will change. Jason, you have the last word on this. So I had a new idea from listening to both of you about that. I think... The biggest problem with how we use children right now is, is a symptom of our aversion to facts. And that to me is still the fundamental problem because we can agree when our children are in danger. The problem is we don't agree on the facts about what's putting them in danger and what would keep them safe. I don't have a solution for that, but that to me, I think you're right, Chris, we're not going to get away from using the response we have to children in danger, but I wish we could find a way back to a factual evidence-based approach to addressing it. That was a good place to stop, Jason. Well done. Thank you. Well, inspired by you too. Aw, look at this mutual admiration. <laughs> we all love each other. All right, let's move into recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha, I picked you because gonna... you didn't look ready. So <laughs> uh, No, I'm going to go with an anti-recommendation. Oh, I love these. Go. I'm ready. Season, I'm leaning season in. Season two of Bridgerton. Can I just tell you before you what? go into it? My first reaction was, oh no, she's so pretty though. But oh my God, I, am I me too now? I shouldn't say that. And okay, go ahead. Well, so tell, tell, the, the main woman, she's also oh, in sex education. She's gorgeous. She's I was about to say, well, but. Um, <laughs> all right, let's let you get one. the end. I'm stepping over your anti-recommendation, please. No, 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 no. So, you know, I think, listen, I'm going to introduce people to this idea. I'm a romance reader. So it's really important in a romance that you understand that fundamentally the romance is about the two people. It's the, it's about the couple. You could do all the things you want around the couple, but if you fail to build a narrative arc for that couple, the romance fails. Otherwise, it's just a family drama, okay? 
season one a romance the characters start they spend the entire sequence getting to know each other they have issues they have conflicts the other thing about a romance that is really important for people to understand is that the conflicts must be internal external things drive it but the conflict must be internal so therefore Simon, first season, you have to get over your fear of loving. You have to get over that. You must place your heart in this woman's hand, even though that is the biggest risk that you can take emotionally. Daphne, you've got to begin to ask yourself different kinds of questions about who you want to be, whatever. Like each, the character has to grow internally because Everyone ends up together in a romance. So it's not the beginning or the end. That's the problem, right? That's not the point. It's the, the point is the journey. It's the journey. Those characters did not have a journey. The romance is dead in the water from the beginning. <sighs> the characters are pretty, but there's no romance and there's no arc. I think they were having problems with the acting. And I think they edited around it. You're being I think mean. they did. You're no, being mean no. now. No, I'm not. No, I think no, I'm not. I'm saying the leads, the one, the guy is wonderful. The woman is beautiful, but she comes across as wooden <laughs> and unnatural. I heard it too. Jason, I heard it too. <laughs> She's beautiful. I heard it too. No, I will That's never critique that. No, I mean, so like like I, I watched the I watched a wonderful reviewer and she said, beautiful gowns, beautiful gowns. And that was the review of the show. Beautiful. <laughs> That's so nasty. No, but you know what? It's it's really important. If the characters don't have enough synergy together and don't have enough energy, it just doesn't work. I never bought their relationship. They weren't mm. on screen long enough together and they didn't get to know each other. The people who love it are people who read the novel and continue to project onto the story. Mm. But I never felt the need to go and read the novel in season one because I thought what they did on screen was fine enough. After I saw this, there was so much agita and angst about it. I was like, I have to go read the novel because I need to see why people love this character so much. And first thing I want to say, if anyone read the novel and watched that show, I'm so sorry. That's not the couple. Oh, yeah. They didn't translate very well. Bad adaptation. Bad adaptation. And what you see now is all of the anxiety around the fact that the adaptation actually was not on point. Ugh. And so there's now a lot of like chatter about they weren't on screen long enough. Oh my God, just, just can you give us all the extra footage that was on the oh. cutting room floor? I was like, there was no footage on the cutting room floor because I don't think they shot them because I don't think the couple worked very well on screen together. Um, so it's an anti-recommendation for me. It's making me wonder if I'm even going to tone in for season three, because I think season one was good enough. Oh dear. Season three may be not necessary. Nothing like a fiery anti-recommendation. Can I just say that was a phenomenal critique? I, mean, I, it was... I didn't watch it or anything. But first of all, Tricia, you should be a professor of creative writing. Like I where did that come from? That was Are incredible. you kidding me? She brings it to you every ball. I mean, well, this is not surprising. <laughs> she's no. she's she thinks yeah, about well, this stuff all the time. The narrative arc and like you were just so specific about that. And I then read a lot of romance. Yeah. What, what I love is usually it's like, oh, that was a great movie. Or that was a great show. I got to go read the book. You were like, that sucked. I got to go <laughs> read the book because I don't understand how anybody ever liked it. I love that. That was great. That was I great. appreciate it. That was my uh, favorite recommendation. Is your media recommendation, recommendation Trisha's anti-recommendation? Anti-recommendation. I'm done. 
No, okay. I'm kidding. No, let, let's hear it. Let's go. Come on. So real quick, Ooh, tell me. For, real quick, first of all, I want to just announce to you, I know I'm way behind, 12 years behind or whatever it is, but Hamilton is coming to the Kennedy Center and we oh. have tickets. Oh, congratulations. So You're going to love it. All the kids. We are very oh, excited. Fun. You're going to love That's it. That's great. You're going to so, love it. I just want to announce that. You're going to be so mad that you spent any time watching anything else on stage. But anyway, I'd be furious. I bet. Although I haven't spent that much time watching this on stage. Although interestingly, my recommendation is going to be something on stage. And I'm going to I'm going to start with the caveat. I know this is problematic and I will reference that in a moment. But we uh, went to New York and saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And I really liked it. Not all of us liked it. I really liked it. My stepdaughter really liked it. I thought it was great. Now, that said, I know we have some thoughts and feelings about J.K. Rowling, which are very uh, valid. And that show in particular, I didn't re- I didn't know anything about it, but I'm watching it and I'm like, OK, clearly these two characters are gay and no one wants to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just gay, but these two characters love each other and no one really wants to, to say it that way. And then I read later that, yeah, it was criticized for queer baiting. And I think that's a valid criticism. But all in all, I thought it was a good show. It's just too bad that it skirts that issue. All right. Interesting. Cool. I want to recommend a show that I saw on Netflix quite by accident. It's a show from Japan called Old Enough. This is apparently a massive hit in Japan. And when it airs, it like one fifth of the um, population watches it at any one time. 20% of all Japanese people are tuned into this. What Old Enough is, it's a TV show where they take children and they show them going on their first errands. Now, being that you're American and you hear this, you're automatically thinking, oh, eight, nine-year-olds? No, children as young as two years old. So the episode that I watched, this young boy who's two years and like six months or something, he has to go pick up three things from the supermarket that is one kilometer away across a busy road. And you see him walk there, collect all the stuff, and then walk back home. He's dragging flowers that are as tall as he is back to his house. I watched the whole thing, my jaw completely in my lap the entire time, because I was like, this boy is less than three years old. Two thoughts. One, you know, that culture is crazy. Two, our children could never, ever, like, I mean, like, the wherewithal. And I read a little bit about the production is that along the route, like, first of all, they've cleared the route. They, they're having watchers like who just look like normal people there. The kid doesn't know who's with the production. The cameras are set up in like hidden locales. So the kid really feels like they're on their own. I just like, we're talking about, will someone please think of the children? If you didn't, if you put an American child, they would just melt into a puddle and die. Like, but this kid is crossing streets. He's paying for stuff. He's collecting change. He forgot something. He turns around. He goes back to the supermarket to get it. I was flabbergasted. The episodes are 11 minutes long. Check it out. You're going to be, you're going to root for the kid. You're also going to be horrified. I love that he walks past a police car and the police just look and they just go about their business. Now, again, like everyone, the production has alerted everyone. So I don't know if this is a common thing in Japanese culture, but I do think as a media moment, it's a wild thing that everyone falls in love with this, where all I see is child abuse. So there it is. Check it out. Old enough <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> I mean, that's really funny you say that, but I was thinking, I think there are lots of other cultures that allow their kids that much freedom too. I could see that happening in my little town. No, right? no, I, no, I, okay. 
but this kid, he gets back home with the stuff and the mom's and the mom's like, hi. I was like, bitch, what were you doing? Why didn't you go to the store? I don't know. This show is called Old Enough. I love it. Apparently two and a half is old enough. I I really recommend it. Watch it tonight. Jason, watch it with your kids because I would love to see what children think about it. It's like 11 to 15 minutes long. I just, I would just love to see what children Sounds think great. about it. It's, it's wild. Well, there it is. That's our abbreviated episode. It was the full length for us, but it was abbreviated for you. I hope you liked it. Uh, <laughs> the rest, the rest of it is lost forever. Oh boy. Oh, I'll tell you it's hard, but you know what? On that note, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.